passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. There are a few things that are as beautiful as a sunrise, if you can get out of bed to make sure that you have seen one. And, and every sunrise uh, is, is unique. Uh, every sunrise is beautiful if you take the time to appreciate it. And yet, I think all of us who have seen a couple different sunrises can say that there are some that stick with us. There are some that are particularly beautiful that leave us in a particular state of awe. And this last August, uh, while I was on my way home from, uh, from Africa, from Tanzania, I had a unique opportunity to experience one of those types of sunrises. It was extremely memorable. My team had just finished with our teaching uh, of uh, pastors in, in northwest Tanzania. We were beginning a long journey home to the United States the exact way everyone wants to do, and that's with a 12-hour car ride uh, through the Tanzania, Tanzanian um, country, and uh, because it was so long, we decided that it was time, we needed to set out uh, in the utter pitch black uh, dark of the night uh, with no street lights, uh, no light at all except for our car's headlights. And so we began this journey, and as time progresses, uh, the oppressive darkness of night, the thick dark of night begins to lift, and the blacks begin to become grays uh, as the light continues to encroach on the territory of the dark and objects that were once indistinguishable because uh, the lack of light now became more and more nuanced as light begins to slowly, slowly, increasingly stream in. And soon the grays turned to pale pinks in the dawn, and that gave way to the eventual rising of the sun, which lit up the entire landscape around us, the beautiful African plains filled with animals beyond count, and it, the, the sun continued its ascent into the sky as it has every day since its creation. And one of the things as I was thinking about in the midst of that was just how beautiful it was and yet how extraordinarily normal it was because that's the way God created it to be. With the, the rising of the sun came warmth, and it might be surprising uh, if, if you consider the fact that we were just a, hundred, a couple hundred miles from the, the equator, but the dark was actually pretty cold there until the sun brought warmth, and that warmth strengthened our bones, it filled us with peace, it filled us with tranquility that we didn't even know was missing until it was ignited within us. And of course, the rising of the sun brought light. The darkness dissipated before it as the light continued to grow and grow and grow. The things that were unknown were now revealed. The hidden was now exposed. We could see the beauty all around us. The mystery of the terrain had now been solved. A sense of inner peace a sense of calm settles on the soul. And as I was preparing for this morning's text, I was just thinking about that moment and realized that that's the perfect description of the dawning of God's kingdom. This morning's passage in Malachi uses this phrase about the son of righteousness. What a powerful statement. What a powerful phrase. 
that we have seen the dawning of the sun of righteousness. We've talked this morning about this being Palm Sunday. It's the day where the church remembers the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And as we read earlier, Jerusalem welcomed Jesus as a king. But not just as a king. The crowds welcomed Jesus as the king. They welcomed Jesus as the promised Messiah, the one who would bring in the kingdom of righteousness, this kingdom of God finally established on earth. And as they welcomed Jesus, this long-awaited king, they said, take your throne, Jesus, to bring justice to both the oppressor and to the oppressed. And the crowds began to cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And in the midst of this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, there was this expectation that the long-awaited son of David, the long-awaited king in David's line would bring about the day of the Lord. Indeed, the day of the Lord was now at hand because the Messiah had come. It would be a day of judgment for the wicked and a day of vindication for the righteous. No wonder Jesus was met with such fervor, with such passion from the people of Jerusalem and the surrounding country as the crowds welcomed their long-awaited Messiah to his throne. He had finally come. And in, in one sense, the crowds were exactly right. Jesus was, or Jesus is, the long-awaited king. Jesus was, and Jesus is, the one who will usher in the day of the Lord. He was, and is, the dawning of the Son of Righteousness upon the face of the earth. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, in the book of Luke, talks about this as he's prophesying about John the Baptist's birth. He says this in Luke chapter 1, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give us light, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. The triumphal entry is this incredible day, this incredible moment where people are so excited that Jesus is going to usher in the kingdom of God. He's going to usher in the day of the Lord. And yet astoundingly, less than a week later, the hopes of those people, the hopes of such a kingdom have been squashed with Jesus's crucifixion. People look for the son of righteousness. And instead of the son of righteousness, they are given utter darkness on Good Friday. They look for justice on their enemies, upon their oppressors. Instead, the one who is supposed to bring justice for them is instead slaughtered at the hand of their enemies, slaughtered at the hand of their oppressors. From their perspective, the dawning of righteousness, no closer than it had ever been. The people longed for this dawning of righteousness, and yet it never seemed to come. They longed for God to come and to make all things right, and yet they were left in utter darkness. They continued to dwell in a time of injustice, a time of oppression where the righteous lived in oppression from the wicked while they prospered. And as the people waited, they began to despair 
They gave up hope and they began to ask God, how long, O Lord? I mentioned earlier this morning we are concluding our time in the book of Malachi. The context of Malachi is very similar to the same context as the the Palm Sunday crowds. They experience the same frustration that boils over in Holy Week. That's exact same frustration that the people in Malachi's day were facing. A question that they had already been asking over and over again that we've already looked at in this book. Where is the God of justice? When will the kingdom of righteousness come? How long, O Lord, must we wait until the sun shines upon the deeds of the evil and upon the deeds of the righteous. This morning is God's response to that mindset. We'll be in Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4, looking at how God answers the questions of the people in Malachi's day. And the way he answers this is really in just three movements. First, we look at the temptation that is facing us in the Christian life. Second, we're going to look at the right view for Christian obedience. And then third, and finally, we're going to look at the key to faithfulness, the key to Christian obedience in the midst of what seems to be darkness. As we approach God's word, let's, let's pause and pray once more. Please pray with me. God, uh, as, we, uh, as we approach your word, we are, uh, again, just so thankful for it. We are thankful that you speak through it. And this morning, as we approach a week that is set aside to remember the most important moment, the most important moment in the history of creation itself, we pause. We ask that you would come. We ask that you would speak to us. We echo the words of Samuel, crying, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. God, it is our prayer that we would hear. And it is our prayer that you would come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, please follow along, starting in Malachi chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. I'll stop right there. Here in this final rebuke that God is beginning toward the people of Israel and in the same way that he's done up to this point in this book, he is first saying this is what the people of Israel are saying through their actions. And here we see a great temptation that faces each and every one of us this morning and that temptation is this. This life can tempt us to see the Christian life as meaningless. This life can tempt us to see our faith as meaningless. Now, as we have noticed, as we've been in this book, the the people of Israel, they look at their suffering. They look at their poverty, and they look at the prosperity. They look at the the perceived blessedness of the wickedness, uh, of the wicked, uh, of their oppressors, and they conclude, based off the evidence before them, that God is unjust. Now, more specifically, they were apparently past the point of asking God why. 
They weren't saying, God, why is this happening? This text actually refers to God in the third person here. These verses refer to God in the third person. So it's not like they are bringing their petitions to God. They're actually having conversations. They're complaining about God to one another and not bringing their complaints before God. They're saying, I can't believe that God. I can't believe that he allows the wicked to prosper while we continue to suffer. There's no point in following him. There's no point in being good. There's no point in worshiping him. Now, there are two problems with Israel's view here. Let's unpack both of these. First, there's an assumption that they themselves are righteous. When they look at their own suffering compared to the prospering of the wicked, they say, well, we are righteous, and so why is God letting us suffer? And that's their first problem. They are assuming that they are actually righteous. The text here tells us that they were keeping the charge and that they were walking as in mourning before God. As one theologian notes, the the people had the forms of worship down. They were consistent in offering sacrifices in the temple. They were dressing in black as a part of the religious practices that were of that day. They were fasting. They were mourning, just as God had asked them to mourn at the appropriate times. They had the forms of worship down, and yet God continues to withhold his blessing from them. Malachi chapter 2 verse 13 tells us why. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. You see, God can see through their actions. They may have acted the part, but God was not fooled. He no longer accepted their offerings. He no longer accepted their sacrifices because he looked through them and he looked at their heart. He looked at their religious acts and he saw that they were morally bankrupt. There was no good in their actions. There was no meaning to what they were doing. Malachi 2.14, the next verse gives us a little bit of reason. But you say... Why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. The theologian I mentioned just a few moments ago describes the situation in Israel this way. He says, in other words, the forms of worship on Sunday contradicted by faithfulness on Monday are unacceptable to God. It is lifeless religion, and God will not accept it even when it is full of emotion. They were actually really weeping on the altar. God was not moved to pity. Why? Because the form of worship on Sunday was replaced by fornication on Monday. You see, Israel's problem here in these verses, the first problem is one that we've already looked at a couple weeks ago. It is the problem. They complained that the the wicked prospered and they, the perceived righteous, suffered at the hands of the wicked, and yet they were blind to their own sin. They were resting all their hope, not on the mercy of God, but instead in the displays of religion that they made, the displays of religion that are mentioned in verse 14. So our first issue with Israel's reasoning here is that they assume wrongly that they are on the right side of history. God's delay in bringing justice for them is actually mercy for them because they are blind to their own sin, to their own injustice. God is a merciful God, and he is patient to give a chance to those who naively call down justice 
on their own heads the chance to open their eyes, a chance to repent, a chance to follow him. The second issue with Israel's reasoning here is that it is a blasphemous understanding of obedience. It is a blasphemous understanding of obedience in the Christian's life. Note again, verse 14. What are the charges that they level at God? In verse 14, they say, It is vain to serve God. There is no profit in being basically obedient. There is no profit in being obedient to God. In other words, what they are saying is that they are going around and they are telling one another, you are wasting your life if you are following God's commands. It is completely and utterly meaningless. This is what's happening in Israel in that day. Now, their reasoning for such a horrid belief is one that we have looked at multiple times in the book of Malachi. They looked at their suffering. They look at their hardship, and they conclude that God would not allow them, the righteous, to suffer if he were actually good. Now, this thinking actually just betrays a fundamental misunderstanding of obedience. What does it mean to be obedient? Why are we obedient? For Israel, they saw obedience as a religious transaction. The more rules that they kept, the more commands that they followed, the more statutes that they obeyed, the more God owed them. They were like a subcontractor who was only concerned about his bottom line. They kept diligent track of all the work they were doing for God. And at the end of the day, at the end of the job, they came before God with a list of all of the things that they had done for him, expecting full payment for a job well done done. This pragmatic view of obedience, this seeing obedience as a a currency, nothing more than just a currency, has no category, has no way to understand when evil prospers. Because if obedience is a currency, it purchases blessing from God, then the only conclusion when we see the the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer is that they actually have more currency to buy more blessedness from God than the righteous do. And it's only a, a small jump from that line of thinking to the conclusion that they have the exchange rate wrong. That God actually doesn't like righteous deeds. He actually likes the wicked. That's why he's blessing the wicked. God approves of their wickedness. Now, lest we think that this is a, a struggle that is only something that the Israelites dealt with, lest we think that this struggle with God's goodness is only something that those outside the church struggle with, I want us to just consider how this might be present in our own hearts, at least how it might be present in our own hearts subconsciously. So I want you to imagine that you wake up one morning, and even before you open your eyes, you know it's going to be one of those days. 
You know the kind of day that I'm talking about. The amount of light shining in through the window tells you that you have overslept. And so you frantically get out of bed and you run into the shower, but of course the shower is out of hot water. So you head downstairs for a quick bowl of cereal before you head off to work, but the milk is sour. You would ask your spouse to pick up some on the the day before, but they forgot, and everyone in your family was kind enough to test the milk and put it back in the fridge instead of just throwing it away. They waited for you to do that. So you call uh, uh, the the office and you uh, leave a message saying you're going to be late because you have to get the kids ready for school, and you make three trips back into the house before you even leave the driveway because of lunchboxes, homework, gym shorts. You walk into work. You're already stressed. You're in a bad mood. You show up and you see that everyone is waiting for you to lead the presentation that you were supposed to be leading. You try to lead the meeting, but you are frustrated, you are anxious, and you notice that your boss is in the corner taking notes that are going to come back to haunt you on your job review later on. Now, over lunch, you hear some coworkers are going out to eat, and they invite you along. You forgot your lunch because of how late you were running, so you decide to go out with them. But of course, the conversation takes a turn for the worse. Everyone starts talking about politics, and that leaves everyone in a bad mood. You head back to the office. You begin to count down the, uh, the hours until you are done with work for the day. After work, you decide to head to the YMCA. You want to blow off some steam. Uh, You want to just have a few moments of peace, and you are in no mood to talk with anyone. You make sure that everyone knows that by the way you carry yourself, that you do not want to be bothered. And yet your friend, the one that you have been praying for, the one you have been inviting to church for months is there, and they start talking with you. They share some struggles that they are going on in their life, and you have this awesome opportunity to share the gospel with them, to invite them to church, to speak life into them, and yet you are still so seething for how bad the day has been up to this point that you just ignore the opportunity. You walk out the door and say, I'm so sorry. I'll talk to you later. You get home. It's much of the same. Upset kids, upset spouse, work spills into the evening. By the time bedtime comes around, you just flop into bed. But before you fall asleep, you say this prayer. God, what a terrible day. Please forgive me for my attitude. Help me do better tomorrow. Now, compare that day with the opposite day. Imagine, instead of rather than waking up late, you wake up early. You have more than enough time for your devotions, and that is some of the sweetest time of fellowship, some of the sweetest time of prayer with God that you have had in months. The kids and your spouse are all agreeable. Life is good on your way to work. We can't be too unrealistic. You only have to make two trips back into the house before you drop the kids off at school. You knock that meeting out of the park. You are called into your boss's office later that day. They want to congratulate you on such a job well done, and they give you a bonus. Now, you go out to lunch with your friends, and you actually have the chance to share the gospel with your coworkers, and so you go ahead and you do just that. After that, you head to the YMCA, where you meet your friend who you've been praying for and have been inviting to church for months, and you share the gospel with them. They finally accept your invitation to go back to church, so you leave, and you are on cloud nine. You go home, you decide to make a a home-cooked, from-scratch meal for your family. Everyone enjoys it. 
which is shocking with a two-year-old for me. Your family enjoys time with one another. All of the bad feelings of that previous day are completely gone. The kids share about what they are learning in Sunday school, and your heart melts, and you fall asleep. But before you fall asleep, your prayer, it's like it's possessed by a Puritan, by this saint, and you start using words that you didn't even know before, and you say, oh, glorious, omnipotent, triune God, how great you are, I thank you for this day, and you might even throw in some these and thous. Compare those two days. One a day where your attitude is just rotten, where you are unfaithful, where you are disobedient, and a day where your attitude is great, where you have opportunities to share the gospel and you take them, where you let your light shine before others. Compare those two. Which day is more likely to earn a blessing from God? It's the wrong question to be asking, isn't it? We can't earn a blessing from God. Now, don't get me wrong. God is absolutely pleased when we are obedient to him. He's absolutely pleased when we spend time with him. God is absolutely pleased when we are a light to those who are around us for his glory. But the moment we begin to think that living a good life for God will earn us his blessing in our lives, particularly as the Israelites thought, that it will earn us God's blessing physically and materially and immediately. We're asking the wrong question. We're falling into the exact same trap the Israelites did in Malachi's day. This heart of the Israelites, it's a human problem. It's not just a problem the Israelites struggled with. This problem of looking at obedience as a currency to buy God's favor. It's something that dwells within each and every one of us. So how do we avoid this temptation? Malachi continues, starting in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Here in these verses we see a remnant, a small group of Israelites who hear God's rebuke of the nation and they decide to repent. And here in in God's response to these repenting Israelites, we are reminded uh, of our second point this morning, and that is this. The Christian life is an act of worship, not a religious transaction. The Christian life is an act of worship. It's not a religious transaction. Obedience is not meant to be a form of currency that we can use to curry favor with God, but instead is an act of gratitude to all that God has done for us. It is an act of worship to this God. Notice briefly just three descriptions of the heart of the one who worships God through obedience and not who sees obedience as a religious transaction, a currency to place God in their debt. First, God describes the obedient, the repentant, as those who fear him. 
Anybody saying, well, what does it mean to fear God? It doesn't mean to be afraid of him, at least not in the same way that little children are afraid of monsters under the bed. Have you ever met a famous person? I remember in, in college, I, uh, I had a chance to have, a, have lunch with a Grammy-nominated um, singer. Um, that person had actually been foundational in my conversion just five, six years earlier, and so I was pretty excited for this meal. And I remember sitting down with that person, I remember how I was just hyper-aware of how I was acting. My heart was beating out of my chest. My hands were all sweaty. I wanted every fiber of my being to make a good impression on this person. And so when they said something, I nodded vigorously in agreement with them. I offered to go get more food for them. I laughed probably obnoxiously at all of their jokes. So imagine the horror when I uh, laughed too obnoxiously at one point and actually knocked his wife's smoothie all over him or all over her. Wasn't a great way to uh, make an impression on someone that you wanted to impress. I think, in one sense, that's an imperfect picture, an imperfect glimmer of what it means to fear God. It means to shudder, to tremble at the thought, at the very thought of offending God. The very thought of offending God through disbelief, through disobedience, it is to do all in your power to honor and to pay respect to this person who is worthy of that respect. And it is this heart that God recognizes as the one who worships him. First piece is to fear him. Second, we note that these verses tell us that God treasures those, those who hold his name in high honor. Far from disgracing God's name with slanders like those mentioned in verses 13 through 15, these are people who may not understand why God does things the way he does, and yet they defer to God's infinite wisdom above their own. They will never slander the name of God. They hold his name in high honor. Third, God describes these people by saying that they are the ones who serve me as one serves a father. They serve him like a son. It's important to notice this qualifier here, this like a son here when it's talking about service. God doesn't want service like the Israelites are offering in that day. The Israelites were offering God plenty of service, and yet it was all worthless in God's eyes. It was lazy. It was resentful. It was half-hearted. It was of no value to God. But service that is offered, and another way to translate this word service is actually worship. Worship that is offered to God from the relationship of a father and a son, or the father, and a daughter. That is the heart that God desires. And so as we look at this text, our, our first section reveals the temptation facing each of us. The second reveals the heart that we are to have when we are approaching obedience, approaching God's commands. Our final section actually reveals the motivation for having this heart. Take a look at chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, 
The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. God is answering the accusations from Israel is answering these accusations, these questions, these slanders that say that God doesn't care, that God actually prefers the wicked. And he answers those questions by assuring everyone that there is a day coming. There is a day of reckoning coming. And here we see the root of all true worship. Confidence in Christ's return is the root of all true worship. Confidence in Christ's return is the root of all true worship. I will admit, this passage starts absolutely terrifying. On that terrible day of the Lord, no one will longer call the wicked blessed. The people in Malachi's day, Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, were doing exactly that. On that day, they will no longer do that. The evildoer will get consumed like dry grass in an oven. The picture here is an oven that gets so hot that the air itself ignites and the grass is consumed by it, leaving only stubble. The lavish prosperity of the wicked before God will be left a desolate landscape forever scarred by their fire. Who in their right mind would long for that day of justice. Who in their right mind would long for this day to come? God says, here in these verses, the only one who can look forward to that terrible day and see it as a beautiful day is the one who fears his name. He says, the blessing beyond comprehension awaits those who repent, awaits those who truly worship him, who truly honor him, who serve him as his children. You see, as we began this morning, we, we looked at this phrase here in verse 2 about the dawning of the, or excuse me, of the son of righteousness. You might be saying, well, what exactly does that phrase mean? It's, it's something kind of already described. It simply refers to the dawning of God's kingdom of righteousness, this righteous age. It's what the book of Luke has in mind when it talks about the sun shining from on high when Jesus came 2,000 years ago. The dawning of this righteous kingdom, this righteous age, will never end. It will never reach twilight. It never, will never fade. It will never be conquered by the dark. God's righteous kingdom, the sun of righteousness, will continue to shine forever. And it will bring peace and healing and comfort for those who have been wounded by the injustices of this present age. And each of us carry wounds they could be big, they could be small, but there is vindication in that day. Verse 2, verse 3, they give us two responses of the redeemed in that day. I want to look at the second one first in, in verse 3 because it's a little less personal to us this morning. Uh, verse 3, uh, Malachi tells us that the righteous will actually tread down the wicked. You might be saying that that seems a little harsh. I just want vindication. I don't need to step on them especially in the context of this new covenant, this new covenant that tells us to forgive our enemies, to love them, to pray for those who persecute us. 
And I'll, I'll admit, I'm not quite sure the exact details of this verse when it comes to the day of the Lord, but I think what is clear from this verse is that the righteous will be completely and utterly vindicated. The righteous will be completely and utterly victorious over the wicked. If you have ever been harmed, if you have ever been hurt, and you find yourself struggling with the ability to forgive someone for the wrong that they have done for you, then Malachi 4.3 means a whole lot more than it might mean to someone else. It is a rest, it is assurance that vindication and victory will come for you. And second, Malachi 4.2 reveals the heart of the righteous. It reveals what our hearts will be like in that day. And it says that we will be uh, like calves leaping with joy from their stalls. Now, I, I admit that I uh, don't know a whole lot about calves leaping from uh, stalls, uh, being really happy and joyful when they are released from their stalls. But over the past 12 months, I have been introduced to uh, something that I find relatively comparable. Uh, it is a, a friendly little tractor named Otis. Let's go ahead and show that picture of what Otis looks like. That's Otis. Uh, he likes to putt, he likes to puff, and he likes to puttity chuff around the farm that he lives on. And on one of his adventures, Otis, uh, his dear little friend, the calf, the little calf gets stuck in a mud pond. The only way that this little calf can get out of the mud pond is, because, is when Otis comes and leads his friend to safety. And that joy on the calf's face starts an entire parade in Otis's honor. An entire parade because Otis saved the little calf. And there's leaping and there's singing and there's dancing and it's all in Otis's honor. See, little kids' books can teach us quite a bit about the Bible. It's that same heart that is in view here in Malachi. It's that same heart that is in view in the day of the Lord. There will be leaping. There will be singing. There will be joy inexpressible in that day because we have broken free from the clutches of sin. We have been released from our prison to sin and we will dance. We will sing and we will leap with that joy. When we think of Palm Sunday, we see just a little glimpse of that. Thousands of years ago, thousands of miles from here, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, there was just a little glimpse of that joy. Jesus came into Jerusalem as God's promised king, and it is that same joy that we are able to respond with today. Because of what Christ has done, from us, done for us. Colossians chapter 1 tells us this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The last few verses of Malachi, they may seem a bit out of place here. Here there is a charge in verse 4 to remember the commands given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And then a, a prophecy about this prophet like Elijah who will come before the day of the Lord. You might be saying, well, beyond telling us about John the Baptist, the prophet who comes like Elijah, do they, these have anything to say to us today? I think absolutely. Moses and Elijah were oftentimes used as shorthand to describe the totality of the Old Testament. So when Jesus at his transfiguration 
uh, is up on the mountaintop, who is it that comes in and speaks to him? Well, it's Moses, who, the prophet who wrote the Pentateuch, and it's Elijah, the, the prophet who continued to call God's people back to God. They, they serve as a symbol of the, of the totality of the Old Testament. And when they appear with Jesus at the, tri- at the transfiguration, it is a statement that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. And here, Palm Sunday, just a short time after the transfiguration, at this triumphal entry of a king, the long-awaited king that the Old Testament spoke about, we are reminded that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, and yet a few days later, he does it while on a cross. It was on that cross where the terrifying day of the Lord is poured out on Jesus for the sake of those who repent, for the sake of those who fear his name, who hold his name worthy of of esteem, for those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And so this morning, as we remember Palm Sunday, as we remember the, the week that is to come, You see, we're not charged, as it says in verse 4, to remember the commands of Moses. It's more important for us to remember the cross. The most important thing God has done for us, the work of Christ on our behalf. Remember it. And that's our message this morning. In light of the cross, do not lose heart in the face of evil but rejoice at the dawning of righteousness. In light of Jesus' cross, do not lose heart in the face of evil, but rejoice at the dawning of righteousness. The sun of righteousness has come. It shines. And for the past 2,000 years, it has continued to shine, continues to shine brightly, continues to climb further and further into the sky, drawing ever closer to the brightness of the noon day where it will stay forever with no darkness, no diminishing of God's righteousness and justice because God is a God of justice. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your goodness. We are thankful for your mercy. And this morning, we ask that you would help us to be a people who worship you rightly, who seek your face, who trust in you, who fear you, and who hold your name in highest honor. We do this not because of any merit in ourselves, but because Jesus took the terrifying day of the Lord for us. Thank you, God. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.